Welcome back to The Leaders We Need. I am Joel Harder. The seasons are turning here in Oklahoma. The days are getting longer. The weather's growing warmer. Well, most days. As winter turns to spring, the legislative calendar tightens up at the Oklahoma State Capitol. The next few weeks are dedicated to the second round of committee work, and then it's getting to the last opportunity for legislation to be heard on the floor. Legislators are making decisions about bills still alive in the session. They'll either be defeated in the House and Senate, or they'll be passed and sent to the governor for his signature. Once that work is done, all attention really turns to the state budget. Now, a lot of work on the budget is well underway, uh, but it's typically among the last things on the legislative agenda heard on the floor. So we begin to pay more attention, hear more stories about discussions around the budget towards the end of the session. And that's the normal rhythm of the legislative calendar. But this is also an election year. So as session wraps up, many legislators hit the campaign trail. I've had the opportunity to talk with a number of legislators about how they plan to tackle the rigors of day-to-day life on the campaign. And I've been able to meet a few people who are planning to run for office for the first time, as some legislators do term out this year. These conversations are regular reminders of how important the job is. The seriousness with which people undergo the prospect of seeking office, but they also remind me that they're still people, like you, like me. They have a sense of purpose or a reason that they seek office, and if elected, will serve. As election year activities ramp up in your community, I want to encourage you, take the opportunity to meet them. Meet the candidates. Listen to their speeches, of course. And know that, yes, those speeches are written to help them tell you their story, but talk to them too. Maybe ask them a question like the ones you hear on the leaders we need. You may not agree with all or any of their policy positions. And if you do, remember that they will one day have to take a hard vote. You won't always agree with them. But getting to know who they are, where they're coming from, their stories and experiences from their life that got them into running for office in the first place, they can help you understand how they approach difficult policy decisions, how they weigh the issues. That's the kind of conversation I had with today's guest, Representative John Waldron. He's a Democrat representing District 77 in the Oklahoma State House of Representatives. District 77 includes parts of Tulsa, Owasso, and Catoosa counties. John is a teacher. He studied international relations at George Washington University and considered for a time a career as a Foreign Service officer at the U.S. State Department before he discovered a passion for teaching, for education. I really enjoyed discussing our current theme of wisdom and leadership with John as well. I think you will too. Before we get into my conversation with Representative Waldron, let me remind you, The Leaders We Need is a podcast going beyond policies and politics to focus on the people who are leading in our state. Oklahoma capital culture is non-political. 
we do not take any political stance on issues or legislation, and that's by design. It's part of how we accomplish our mission and work with leaders across our state to shape a culture of civility, integrity, and servant leadership. But just because we here at Capital Culture are strictly non-political, that in no way means we don't think the policies matter. They absolutely do. I wouldn't be doing this work if I didn't think they mattered. Naturally, political thinking, policy approaches come up in these conversations. It would be strange if they didn't. That's precisely why we are doing the work. These topics and issues matter. By shaping a culture of civility, we can have conversations about policies the disagreements or differences of perspective that exist so that a better path forward can be found. I believe you'll find my conversation with John Waldron helpful, going beyond particular policies, learning the background, perspective, experiences that inform his thinking and his approach to political policy serving in the legislature. The views and positions Representative Waldron expressed in our conversation do not represent the views of capital culture because we, by definition, do not take a position on a particular viewpoint. Rather, they are his, and I am grateful he shared them with me. Well, let's get into the first part of my conversation with Representative John Waldron right now on The Leaders We Need. Capital culture has enabled a different and a new atmosphere in state politics. This is The Leaders We Need with Joel Harder, a podcast going beyond the politics and policies to focus on the people who lead in our communities, states, and nation. Conversations that restore the civility we need in our politics while promoting the integrity we need in our leaders. The Leaders We Need with Joel Harder, a resource from Oklahoma Capital Culture. Well, Representative John Waldron, thank you so much for joining us on The Leaders We Need for our conversation. Can I call you John? Yes, you can. Can I call you Pastor Joel? You can call me Pastor Joel or Joel. (laughs) So uh, we always start the podcast by asking all of our guests to... Go back into your history okay. and think back on your life and who were those people, uh, maybe those experiences that really shaped, in particular, your leadership as you're now uh, an elected leader in our state. Maybe at the time you mm-hmm. didn't see how and much they were shaping that, but in retrospect, they really were formative. Well, I think I have a story about that, yeah. actually. Um, two of the most formative people in my life, of course, were my parents, Mary Lee uh, Waldron and Thomas Farrell Waldron, who had um, nine children from the 50s through the 70s. My father uh, was a local politician and a building contractor, and uh, as you might expect, a good Catholic. Yeah. And um, But he passed away in 1979 when I was about 10 years old. So my mother raised us, I think there were five of us in the house at the time, 
And uh, she went back to school. She got a job. She worked really hard to keep us all together. And she kept us on a path forward. Um, she's 90 now. We gathered uh, her nine children and 14 grandchildren and the various great-grandchildren all assembled for her birthday yeah. last Thanksgiving, which was nice, especially after the pandemic years we've been through. Yeah. But I, uh, like my father, I started, I got into politics. I ran for the state Senate in 2016 I, and I lost. I ran again in the, for the uh, Oklahoma House of Representatives in 2018. And I had a primary uh, challenger. Uh, it was a really tough, close, hard fought election. And it was held on, I think, the 18th of June, 2018. The uh, day of the election, I happened to be going through some old stuff, and I found one of my father's brochures. It was a little campaign flyer from his race for the, uh, as mayor of Bernersville, New Jersey, and it was for exactly 50 days before yeah. uh, the day. So I was elected to my first—well, I won my first uh, primary 50 years to the day after he was elected mayor of my hometown. Uh-huh. Yeah, That remnant of a former campaign, former generation— mm-hmm. Uh, repurposed and mm-hmm. I, I have to quickly share. So we have the dining room set for my grandparents and my grandfather was in Missouri. And at one point he ran for state office. I think he ran for state auditor or something like that was unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. And I noticed after we got their table and chairs that he repurposed some of his campaign signs and they are now the seats of our <laughs> dining room <laughs> our dining room chairs. That's right. So, well, tell me quickly your journey to Oklahoma, mm-hmm. clearly from New Jersey. What brought you to Oklahoma? Well, um, New Jersey's number one export is college students. Mm-hmm. And I went to the University of Virginia first, and then uh, I got my master's degree from GW, and it was in international affairs. So I I lived in Washington, D.C. for many years, and I met a girl uh, at uh, GW, and she was from Tulsa. And we dated uh, uh, for several years before she moved back to Tulsa. And then she asked me uh, if I would consider moving out there, and I was reluctant, um, but she asked me three times, and yeah, yeah, a good Catholic boy will always say yes if you ask him (laughs) three times, and uh, I did, and things didn't work out between us, but I came to love the school I was teaching at and the community, and I met uh, an English teacher at the school, so I guess the short version of the story is that I came for a girl, and I stayed for a woman. Yeah, well, hey, there's wisdom in that that statement right there. So UVA, mm-hmm. um, I love that campus. Mm, the I, grounds I, are beautiful. I love that campus. And also going to Monticello, mm. we got to do that one time. We were in the D.C. area, had a lot of students that, mm-hmm. that went to GW. Mm. You said George, GW, George Washington. That's University. right. So, yeah. it, so we had a, a number of GW students, but also George Mason oh, yeah. students. And so came to Tulsa mm-hmm. and you started teaching. Yes. And I want to get to the your journey into running for office and now serving in our legislature, but clearly you have a career as an educator and a teacher and your experiences in life have been varied and different things that you've done. I've noticed as I've gotten to know members of the house and Senate, it was so neat to meet in them and their stories is it's not all just a bunch of lawyers, (laughs) you know, Uh, which not not that there's anything wrong with lawyers, but I I remember interacting with a lot of lawyers who you you would go to law school to maybe one day run for office and the interest in, in crafting law. But in Oklahoma, there is a, there really is a diversity of backgrounds and experiences as you look back on the different 
things you've done, was there a particular role or job that just where it just clicked? You know, I, I think of calling and skill and training and all those things. You know, sometimes you're putting those to use in a, in a job or a, a season, but sometimes it all just clicks. Yeah. Was there a particular aspect of your career or job where it just clicked? And what was that? Well, it was kind of a winding road. Um, I studied uh, history in college, but then I took a class in international relations that I really liked. So I went for a degree in international affairs with the idea that I might work in an international capacity. I thought about the consular service, working for the State mm -hmm. Department in our overseas embassies. Um, but while I was taking my classes, I was also working. I had a work-study job. I had a volunteer position at this little high school down the street. Uh, and I was doing a number of other things while I was getting ready to take the foreign service exam. But one day I was walking down the street and I had this epiphany, and that was that the happiest time of my week was that hour when I was volunteering at this school. Mm. So I changed course. I got my education credits. Uh, I started teaching full-time social studies. But one thing that I really valued about my international affairs studies was that we tended to learn by um, interactive exercise. So we would do um, international crisis simulations mm. where people would play diplomats from different countries and then they'd all have to come together and come up with a solution. And um, strangely enough, twice the international crisis we had to deal with involved a uh, Ukrainian-Russian conflict. Wow. Yeah. yeah, We've been thinking about this for a long time. But that became the model for my teaching. I would lecture, I would assign readings, I would make the kids write things. But the heart of my instruction was always giving the kids roles to play in a carefully constructed setting that was designed to teach them to solve problems and understand complexity through their collective efforts. Yeah. So that, I would say, is an example of how something clicked for me as a teacher. Yeah. Obviously, the leaders we need is part of the work that we do through Capital Culture. One of the initiatives that we have is the Legislative Fellowship Program that we launched this past year. And of course, we organize it around the legislature because public policy touches every aspect of industry and community needs and issues. And, and yet the fellows don't just focus on policy. They get to interact with different community leaders, industry leaders. As you're describing that immersive, maybe role playing to, to game out what it looks like to solve a problem. Uh, the fellowship program concludes with the fellows breaking into groups and tackling a problem. And if any of the fellows are listening, which they're supposed to hmm. in order to uh, successfully complete the fellowship, just kidding. One of my great goals is that uh, some, whatever their, their project or, or problem is that they're working to solve, sometimes there's a policy solution, sometimes there's not. Sometimes it's just leaders in the community or various sectors or industries coming together to solve a problem. And that's the great hope that by actually gaming out some of these problems and coming up with a solution, we get a bigger picture for how we move forward as people and as communities, yeah. as a state. I love to ask this question of every elected legislator I meet and know. What was that one thing that put you over the mm. edge uh, to put your family through the rigors of a campaign and actually run for office. Well, that was a journey, too. I was actually recruited by my uh, sitting House representative, Eric Proctor, 
he asked me if I would consider running for office, and I did. And then I rejected the idea. I uh, decided that I, you know, I re- went back to that sidewalk moment of epiphany about how I was happiest as a classroom teacher. Yeah. But then somebody said some dumb thing in the legislature about teachers and about education, uh, and I got angry and I posted something on Facebook, and then. You know, a lot of things begin with a foolish statement on Facebook. And uh, that was the beginning of my uh, candidacy for the state Senate. And it was 2015 when I launched. So uh, rage. Yeah, rage. Um, I, as a teacher, had this very strong sense of how things ought to be. You know, a teacher creates this construct of a classroom and establishes standards and parameters and uh, a context in which people can learn. And I kept feeling like the legislature was violating the terms of agreement. You know, they would say things that I thought were ignorant or unproductive or politically minded, and that ordinary people, especially our students, suffered uh, from that. And so, against my better judgment, I uh, filed for candidacy and I started running. And, you know, if you to quote Gary Cooper in High Noon, well, once you start running, you'll never stop. Yeah. And here I am. Yeah. And yet, I think with all great leaders, best way I can articulate it, there is a a holy discontentment. Mm. You know, you can, and especially in Oklahoma, because we have term limits. Though an interesting thing I did learn uh, talking to a statistician that when term limits got instituted in Oklahoma, the average tenure in elected office actually grew, um, which is an interesting phenomenon. But with term limits, it's in your mind. You're not here forever. Right. And it's it's actually defined. So anything you do will stand on the shoulders of whatever came before you and whatever you accomplish, there will be future people that develop it and adjust and work on it. And so uh, it's okay to certainly celebrate accomplishments in the moment, but the best leaders, you, you're not satisfied. Mm-hmm. There is a holy discontent. You want to get in and solve problems. And again, to the comment earlier of it's not just a bunch of lawyers that just are interested in what does it look like to make laws, but you're coming from a deep knowledge and awareness and familiarity with education in particular. Clearly, I'm because I know you and and will assume from your story, education and education policy is of interest to you. But when you come to the legislature, you don't get to just work on the things you're interested you got to work you got to vote on everything right um what are those areas of policy that have have really lit you up that you've been able to to work on or get interested in or want to work on well it's interesting because you really you aren't just there to advance a political agenda you have to serve the needs of your constituents and you operate in this big body that represents and speaks for the state of oklahoma as a whole so they put me on the wildlife conservation the wildlife committee uh, and uh, that was new to me. I'm not a hunter or a fisherman. I uh, didn't really have any skin in that particular game. But I've come to appreciate the work of that committee, the importance of wildlife conservation, and the critical relationship hunting 
plays with that in our state. And in a lot of cases, because I didn't have um, an interest in any particular hunting point of view, I could study the North American Gaming Compact, for example, yeah. and its implications and why we have the system that we have in place here. Just a little short history. The right to hunt is embedded in Oklahoma's history all the way back to the treaties with the, the five tribes. In the 1950s, we reorganized the Department of Wildlife and embedded in our constitution this model that says that the department will be paid for by the fees from hunting and it will use those fees to promote a wildlife conservation. Mm. hundred years ago, the deer population in this state was uh, played out. Uh, now uh, it's thriving and we draw hunters from all over the state. We have more hunters and more deer at the same time. Mm. And we're also able to do all kinds of other great public conservation work in terms of keeping land pristine, preserving species, doing population surveys, hiring biologists to understand our ecosystem. And all that is precious and important and worth preserving. I mean, I think I'm a Democrat, but the definition of... Uh, a conservative is one who wishes to conserve things like our natural resources. So I ended up in an odd way being the defender of the North American Gaming Compact from other people who wanted to uh, change laws, maybe carve out special interest uh, segments. Um, the longest debate I ever got into on the floor of the House didn't have to do with education. It had to do with a mad deer disease. Huh and uh, whether the department should have should use modern efforts to uh, manage uh, the disease. I ended up being the guy who said who stood up for the department on that one and uh, fought against what I thought were efforts to roll back our disease prevention mechanisms. Mm. All of that was a year before uh, the pandemic started. Wow. Yeah. It is always so fascinating because you, you know there's particular passions or expertise that drive you into various aspects of law or, or the state. But it, it is interesting to hear how those unexpected areas of focus do develop. And, yeah. and we have to have thoughtful debate about it to get the best policy mm -hmm. to move forward. Well, we can make a fisherman out of you. That's, uh, I, that's how I bonded with my father-in-law was fly fishing. So um, I want to shift our focus a little bit. In this season of the podcast, we're really focusing on this idea of wisdom and leadership, building off of some different conversations and work that I've done over the last few years. But the concept of wisdom itself, maybe in general, want to hear from you as just in your life and experience, but as an elected leader, let's start big picture general. Just how do you think about wisdom? How do you define it? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I think I like that you're talking about wisdom because it's very different from the other concept we have of intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, wisdom is more colored by an appreciation of one's limitations, mm. whereas intelligence is about what you can know and how you can use your brain to understand. Wisdom is about accepting that you can't understand everything. Right. And therefore that you operate in a um, world of doubt. Intelligence can help you to figure out the process whereby you can resurrect the velociraptor and wisdom can tell you that that might not be a good idea. Unpack that a little bit. Okay. And knowing what you don't know. Yeah. I mean, it would be my pithy way of, of summing that up. Knowing that can be unsettling. Yeah. Um, even just to come to terms with the fact that there's a blind spot here. Right. 
So how do you how do you develop that without I guess maybe resigning or becoming <clears throat> coming you know fearful of what you don't know? I taught a class called Theory of Knowledge uh, with the students, and it was about it was a critical thinking uh, class, not critical race theory, a critical thinking class mm -hmm. for the record. Uh, and uh, it was our job to teach uh, doubt. Um, I like to teach things like um, St. Augustine's concept that um, we're never going to truly understand God because God is infinite in time and space, and yeah. we're finite in time, time and space. We're always only ever going to understand a particular dimension, an aspect. And, you know, Descartes is famous for his phrase, uh, I think, therefore I am, yeah. uh, cogito ergo sum. But he also was known for the phrase dubiter ergo sum, I doubt, therefore I am. Hmm. And from that, you can get the beginning of a basis. You start by doubting any, anything except that you exist. And then you use your sensory capacities to try to learn and understand the world as you go a little bit at a time. You use logic, you use reason, you use evidence, you read and study, you benefit from the experience of people before you. But you always have to apply that capacity of doubt that anything that, you're, that you understand is really so if you want to develop a, a skeptical view of the world, one that can stand up to scrutiny and um, can protect you from the errors of your own capacity yeah. to assume. What's the difference between a skeptical view of the world and a cynical view? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think a cynical view of the world starts with a value judgment yeah. that makes you disinclined to explore further. Mm -hmm. The cynic has information uh, that crosses uh, that show up on his doorstep and it confirms his deeply held suspicions of the world. A skeptic uh, is capable of going out going outside and exploring the world and uh, weighing facts and making judgments. So I don't know. I mean, the cynics, the word comes from an ancient school of thought, I think I recall. Uh, and they applied a useful way of looking at the world, one that rejected assumptions based on faith or tradition. But you've got to have a positive dimension to thought too. Yeah. I mean, you have to seek, uh, you have to want to learn. You know, the modern connotation of the word cynicism is, I think, a, cynicism, a cynic is never surprised because the information that comes to him confirms what he already believes. But a skeptic might uh, come to believe something new mm. based on their careful consideration of the facts. And, that's, and therein lies the wisdom. Maybe that's you right. Can, you, can, uh, you can grow. Yeah. Obviously, this podcast is not a... It's not a leadership podcast in the traditional sense of a how to be a leader. It's certainly not a political podcast in that we're talking about politics. Rather, it is conversations with leaders, conversations with leaders oftentimes, not exclusively, but oftentimes in the political space. And and uh, I'm always very mindful in all of my work and what I do that I, well, people think I'm hopelessly naive is <laughs> is hopelessly just it's not a blind optimism, but I am optimistic. And I know when we come to the realm of politics, optimism may not be the default <laughs> bucket that people are going to. For me, you know, I don't have a 
don't have a life verse or a, or a motto. And I just wasn't raised in a way that I established that kind of thinking. I, I have one. But if I'm pressed, I, I do go to, there's a, a proverb, the righteous, the path of righteous is like the dawning sun growing ever brighter till midday. Doesn't mean that the day won't be hard. Doesn't mean that there aren't going to be rocks in the road that, that you stub your toe on. But it's this view of the future that the sun is rising. Yeah. And so I am optimistic. And and I, especially when then you break it down, don't, why this is why we do these conversations, quite frankly. It's too easy to just resign ourselves to the toxicity or polarization that we see in politics. And as long as it's just that big bucket and this is how we define it, it's hard to be optimistic. But the as you start to break it apart, have conversations like this with individuals that are actually navigating the space and or see those moments in which good work gets done. I mean, you didn't know you'd be hmm. on the wildlife committee no. uh, learning about conservation policy that actually makes for a better ecosystem. And that would be a part of your leadership. But there are those moments when good dialogue takes place. There are those moments when good policy does happen and, and you start to see those smaller chunks and then you begin to believe more is possible. And so maybe it comes across as a little uh, naive or blindly optimistic, but it's, I really don't believe it is. I truly do believe that the the future can be better and to bring it back. That's what the skepticism versus cynicism does is it, it's that opportunity to learn something new, to yeah. think in a way that's different. You've already dropped a lot of names and thinkers and sources, but where do you go for wisdom? You, and again, I, I kind of want to press you to think generally big picture, but you know very well the day-to-day -day reality of you're in that building there's a schedule in front of you. Maybe it's a committee or it's on the floor. There's a conversation that's about to happen, a debate that's going to take place. Where do you go for wisdom, both in general and also in that moment? Well, um, I taught history, and I think I, I do tend to engage in historical thinking. You look at the historical record. Um, we had a bill, for example, that would empower sheriffs to take over some of the work of the Oklahoma Mar Medical Marijuana uh, Agency. And my immediate go-to for that was prohibition. Then mm -hmm. um, during prohibition, one of the challenges of law enforcement was that law enforcement quickly got co-opted by the flood of money that was coming into alcohol sales. And I think we should be cautious because the same problem is relevant to us today. Our law enforcement does a great job, of course, but if we have um, so much money in an in industry, we're going to have to be very careful about um, watching over that industry. And uh, we have to answer the question, uh, who watches the watchman? Which, incidentally, that's juvenile. Uh, Cicero gets that gets credit for that quote a lot, but it's a juvenile's quote. Um, so... Uh, I, I look at things historically. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, things have happened uh, that are, seem relevant to what's happening today. Yeah. The 
danger, the skepticism I should embrace is, am I sure that prohibition is the right analogy for uh, medical marijuana? Um, Do you think that uh, the American Revolution is the model for how we should be proceeding today, uh, for example, on the concept of taxation. We can misapply historical lessons, too. And we do. We tend to appropriate the past for the needs of the present. I guess um, uh, what you're seeing here is that my source of wisdom is to spin around in circles uh, uh, looking at these historical models, looking at uh, asking questions like this, and then ultimately settling on something that feels right. I'm going to pontificate for a second because okay. this is something that I'm seeing, but I want, I want to see if, if you can shed any light into it. I love in what you shared the concept of is it the right analogy? Is it the right... Or have we misappropriated that context to our current moment? One of the challenges that I'm seeing is looking back historically and interpreting history through a present context. And certainly there's elements of our present context and thinking and that we've progressed, we've advanced, we're, we have corrected things that were incorrect then, but, and I guess in a, in a theological term, you'd call it hermeneutics. It's if you don't go back and you gotta have to bracket out your current context and really understand what is happening in that context to understand that model, to actually rightly understand the event or the wisdom or the thinking to then be able to apply that. Is that something that, that you see happening? Am I, am I off in my own head spinning mm. in circles? Is that something you see? How do you, as a history teacher, how do you rightly look at a historical event in its context, I guess? I, I talk about Monticello, mm. one of my favorite quotes in, uh, at the monument in D.C., the Jefferson Memorial is one of his quotes that he talks about laws needing mm. to be updated, and he, he likens it to a, a, a coat. Mm. He's like, the coat that you wore in your youth doesn't fit That's <laughs> anymore. Right. Um, that is butchering the quote. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's the concept, and yet it fit then. Yes. So long lead up mm. to a maybe not well-articulated question. That- Well, I think I've never thought that history could show us what was going to happen next. Mm. But I do think it provides a context for us to understand the present. Um, And uh, the needs of the future are going to be different. Um, But we're going to approach things from that historical reference. Like Oklahoma is a uh, state with a strong tradition of self-reliance, skepticism of the coasts, in that we are a populous state and have traditionally valued the inspired amateur. Um, We were confronted by a, a pandemic uh, the second time in our history as a state, incidentally. The first time was 100 years ago. And um, we looked at it with the wrong historical model, I think. I'll back up for a second. I, uh, we had a snow uh, in 2020, I think, at the beginning of the year, we had a snowstorm. Yeah. And this is before the pandemic hit. And we had to shut down the legislature for a day. And I didn't happen to have anything else to do. So I ended up watching like three episodes of Doomsday Preppers. <laughs> 
Now, the doomsday preppers, you know, the, the premise of the show was that they would find a guy who's prepping for a doomsday, and then they had a checklist. Okay, what doomsday are you prepping for? Okay, where, how are you going to get food? How are you going to have shelter? And how are you going to have security? And then they would interview, they would follow the guy around to see how he did those things, and then they'd come back six months later. And they had one person whose doomsday she was prepping for was a series of F5 tornadoes that were going to ravage the land. And so she needed her husband to build, to get all these explosives so he could blast a bunker so that they would have a place that was cool enough to keep her insulin uh, mm. cold because she was a diabetic. And six months later, they come back and uh, interview her. And how, how is she doing? Well, she's on her way to the court because her husband is divorcing her. She was prepping for the wrong doomsday. Yeah. Thank you for listening to The Leaders We Need with Joel Harder, a podcast from Oklahoma Capital Culture. Oklahoma Capital Culture is a nonprofit organization shaping a culture of civility, integrity, and servant leadership among policymakers through nonpolitical and nonpartisan engagement. Learn more about Oklahoma Capital Culture and how you can help shape the leadership culture at www.capitalculture.com. Original music heard on The Leaders We Need, provided by Scott Allen Matthews at mypodcastmusic.com.